So it's good to be back with you again. Pat introduced me. My name's Matt. I'm the uh, student pastor here, uh, one of our pastors here on staff. Uh, and so it's, it's awesome to be with you guys. We uh, are in a prayer movement. We've kicked off a couple weeks ago. Uh, and Pat is away and, and all that. And so it's too cold for him. So he had to get out of town. Um, so, you know, he's called me up. And, and I'm so excited about this passage, about this movement that we're in. Uh, just kind of as a bit of recap, our church is in this uh, prayer movement series that we're, we've devoted the month of January uh, across all of our different ministry areas from preschoolers into our student er ministry area, which I oversee uh, in, in all of our campuses, all the way up through this room. Uh, we're giving ourselves to uh, kind of coming to the Lord in, uh, in, in, in devoting ourselves to prayer. We understand that uh, and we acknowledge um, that apart from God's moving in our midst, uh, moving this church, building this church as he's promised, um, that we, we will just labor in vain. And so what we've wanted to do is we've, we've felt the Lord's guidance to lead us to this place where uh, as, a, as a church body, a collective body across all of our campuses, uh, that we, uh, we are going to give ourselves to, to really pushing in, leaning in, pressing into the Lord and see what we'd have for us in the future through prayer. Uh, we want to see marriages absolutely wrecked and redeemed and restored. And we want to see, uh, we want to see budgets transformed. We want to see parenting shaped. We want to see uh, students that are rebellious come to know Christ. We want to see people uh, from all different tongues and tribes come to know Jesus Christ. And we understand that, that our involvement in this, uh, this discipline is, is the way that we're going to see that happen, that, that prayer is the, uh, is the directive of the church. And, uh, and, and see, our influence is directly tied to the involvement in prayer. And so uh, we've asked that you be a part of this and be looking forward to these prayer gatherings that we're going to be having. And uh, there's something powerful when the church comes together and we pray. Amen. Maybe you've seen this in your life, and, and so we've been uh, really considering prayer. We've been looking at prayer from many different angles, and last week, Pat uh, talked about the model prayer. Some of you have call, you've heard this commonly called the Lord's Prayer, uh, and, and we've prayed this prayer along with countless others around the world, brothers and sisters from different, uh, different, di different backgrounds, different nationalities, different tongues, and uh, and and we, this is a prayer that's been lifted to God billions of times. Uh, Pat made a comment last, last week that I identify with. I mean, I prayed this prayer prior to even being a Christian with, a, a, you know, my football team, my baseball team in high school. This prayer has been lifted a lot of times. And, and even this side of the cross, you and I have prayed this prayer. We've prayed that the Lord's uh, will would be done. We've prayed that. I've honestly said I, I've prayed that. I've prayed that it be done in my life. I've prayed that his kingdom would come, not, not just on, uh, in heaven, but on earth as it is in heaven. We've, I've prayed these prayers. You might have prayed these prayers with me. Uh, and, and fast forward 2,000 years, however, and it seems as though something uh, has went wrong, that we've not done something right, right? Because we look around, and it's not hard to see. Uh, you can just flip on the news or get your phone out and just scroll through any headline, and you can see that our society and our culture is more twisted and more depraved and disinterested in holiness and godliness and the things of the Lord than ever before in our nation's tenure. Uh, you, on a global worldview scale, uh, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist people seem more resistant uh, to the gospel than ever before. And on a very personal level, you and I have prayed prayers. We've lifted concerns to God that many times, I think if we're all honest, we would, be, we would say never made it out of our bedroom ceiling. We've, we've lifted these concerns on a continual basis to God and, 
seems as though no one's home. No one's listening. Many of you are probably thinking, in light of these, uh, this information, in light of these events that we see continually, why pray? Why waste our time if no one's hearing us, if no one's responding to us? We're doing this consistently. This is something we're, we're called to do, and no one's listening. Why pray? Why waste our time with it? You see, what I want to talk about today is the reality that one of the most difficult aspects, one of the most difficult uh, elements of prayer is the continuation of it, is the persistence of it, the perseverance of it, when it seems that God isn't home. See, prayer is hard enough to have the worry or the concern that no one's hearing us. It, it, is, it is a discipline in that we, we, are, we are called to do it and it takes work to, to be persistent in it. It is, it is, it is not common. Our nation uh, and, and our society would not say that it is very wise of our time, very uh, efficient of, of the time that we've been given to spend our time praying to a God they don't believe in. And so as we're hearing this input from a very uh, twisted and uh, immoral society, a lot of times what happens is we lose, we lose hope in it, we lose heart in it, and our persistence fades. So if we're going to be a praying people, a people that don't lose hope, if we're going to be an effective people, we have to be a praying people. And so today what I want us to see is that an encouragement in the scripture to, to continue to pray when our requests aren't being met with results. And see, what, what Jesus wants to do today through this passage is to recalibrate our perspective. You see, as we pray and as we are walking in different circumstances, I understand in a room this size, there are people in here from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, there are people that walked in here on the rocks in their marriage. Things are crumbling underneath them. There are people in here that are uh, in some financial hardship. There are some people in here with some uncertain uh, corporate futures. There's some people in here that uh, have recently got bad uh, diagnosis or, or some report from a doctor that you can't seem to add up. There, there are some people in here that have said bye to some loved ones. There are some people in here who, who don't know what, where you're going to find tomorrow's meal. There are some people in here with some different stuff. We've all come in here with different things. And what happens many times, if we don't come to the Word and allow it to interpret our, uh, the way we view God and the way we view uh, His faithfulness, our experience will begin to distort and really uh, cloud our perspective of God's goodness. And so what I want to show you today through the passage, what Jesus wants to do is recalibrate, realign, refocus, clear the lens by which we see ourselves and his sovereignty and his goodness and the reality that he is a good, good father as we've sang many times. And when that perspective is honed in, what I want to show you is that that perspective is what will fuel our persistence. That's our bottom line. That perspective is what will motivate our perseverance. That perspective is what will lead us to our needs continually in seeking God because despite the result, he is still good. Despite the outcome, he is still Lord. And so I want to show you this. If you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. That's the passage we're going to look at together. 
But before we do that, I want to kind of set this up um, by looking at some events that happened prior to Luke uh, 18. And, and this is good uh, this is good Bible study principle in general. You have to contextualize the passage that you are studying. Uh, and so in order to set up and for us to really get a great picture of what's going on in the passage we're fixing to look at together, uh, we need to see and, and, and look at this through uh, an understanding of what has just happened. And so if you look at Luke uh, chapter 17, it's just, just a one chapter, maybe the page next to it. I'm not going to read this. I just want to kind of give you the cliff notes of what's just happened. Jesus is speaking uh, to his disciples in response to some questioning he has just received from a group of Pharisees. Now, Pharisees are the religious elect of the day. Uh, and they've asked him. They said, Jesus, when is your kingdom coming? When is, when is the kingdom of God coming? And he's, he replied to them. And he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Right, so he's saying something that foundational that you and I both know. If you've been uh, with us any time, we've talked about this that that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. So, so it is coming. Jesus will restore all things. He will rip open the sky, and his second advent will come. But his kingdom is here. He was saying, "I, I am in your midst." So the kingdom is now and not yet. And then he uses this opportunity to shift his attention to the disciples. Right, two disciples, and what he does in this moment is he, he begins to prepare the disciples for a time, an interim between his, his ascension that we see recorded in Acts and the end of the Gospels, Jesus' ascension and his second coming. This time between, this time of waiting between when Jesus, they, see, they saw him go and sit at the right hand of the Father and in the time when he will come and restore all things and set up his new kingdom. They said in this time, in the interim, the disciples, Jesus knew they would experience incredible trial. And he was moved because you understand Jesus had been pouring his life into the disciples for his, the time that he had been in his earthly ministry. He had been teaching. He had been rebuking. He had been uh, instilling and equipping them. And so he was concerned with them, knowing that they were going to experience pushback. They were going to experience trial. And in chapter, seven, in, in chapter 17 of Luke, he tells them, it will be much like the days of Noah and Lot. You will, be, uh, you will be looked at, you will be excluded, you will be uh, labeled as crazy. And he, he begins to use it as a teaching opportunity. And it is against that backdrop. It's against that backdrop when Jesus says that you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, yet you will not. In the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that persecution, that pushback and rejection that we see this parable spoken against that backdrop and against that darkness that the light of Jesus' teaching will shine the greatest. So look with me at this parable, the persistent widow. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. In verse 1, it says this. It said, and he told him a parable to the effect that they are always to pray. Underline that. Ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he goes in verse 2, he says, And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This is important. We're going to come back and look at this. Verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect? Underline that word right here. Who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? And in verse 8, he finishes this parable with this beautiful statement. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. It's another important word we're going to come back to. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, this is a closing question that uh, I want to pose at the beginning of our time today. Would that be true of you? When Jesus comes and he, you stand before him and every knee will bow, we know, Philippians, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. When that time comes, will he look on you and see faith? Will he find a church gathered in this time where we're saying we're, we're leaning to the Lord, we're devoting our time to the Lord, we are pressing into God, we are believing God despite the results. We, we want to hear from the Lord. We want to we see him move in all these different ways we've just explained. When he comes, will he find that in you? Despite what you're dealing with, despite if he's answering your questions, I mean, the, 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 the comments and the concerns that you bring to him, despite if, if the results are matching, will he find faith in you? Something I want us to see, and let's continue to let that ring in your, your mind this week and even today as we continue in this, this talk together, is given this information of, uh, the, of Luke 17 that we know, and Jesus' is understanding and uh, in his divine sovereign mind of knowing our limitations and our tendencies and our, uh, our fleshly selves, right? He uses this opportunity to, to, to and, and not only with the disciples, but with you and I as a teaching moment, right? Jesus is a master teacher. We know this. He taught often. Uh, he, was, he was a master with words. He never wasted one. And, and from the beginning of this passage we just looked at, Jesus drops the entire point of the narrative that would follow. Now, this is a little different, right? If you're in the room and you don't like spoiler alerts, sorry about it, right? Uh, you know, I, that was me, right? I'm, I'm reading Harry Potter, going through the series, and, and some kid busts up in the classroom. And, yeah, that's right. I'm a pastor. I read Harry Potter. I'm sorry. Um, the Lord's redeemed me. Uh, but listen, we, you know, I, I'm, I'm praying, or not praying, I'm reading, and, and I'm going through Harry Potter, and someone busts in, is like, and just, just destroys, I'm not going to do this because there are some students in the room, um, but just gives me the, the whole point of the entire book, tells me so-and-so killed so-and-so, and it's like, destroys my whole life, right? That, that spoiler alert, you know, gone bad. Uh, some of you are like this, man, you've, you've got to work tonight maybe, and you, you want to watch the AFC and NFC championship games, and so you, you're going to go, and I don't know, maybe you're not working, you just have something else going on, you're going to TiVo that thing, and you know, you're going to stay off Facebook, stay off Instagram, you, you're not going to make contact with anybody, but there's that one dude that always loves to telling you what the score is before you have the opportunity to watch it, right? If you don't like spoiler alerts and you're like me, can I get an amen? Anybody? All right, right? And here's the deal. Listen, if you don't like that, sorry about it. Jesus drops the whole point of everything we're going to talk about today at the very beginning, verse 1 of this passage. Let's go back to it. Let me show you this one more time so we know everything that, that Jesus wants to tell us today. And he told them a parable to the effect. Before we even know what the parable is, he says, they told them a parable to the effect. They are always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point. 
That's the point of the teaching. Jesus says that these disciples, against the backdrop that we know, are going to remain faithful in the interim. If they're going to, ma- to remain persistent in their prayer, if they're going to remain an effective people because of their dependency on the Lord, despite what they're dealing with, they've got to be a praying people. That's his point. That's the point of the entire narrative. He says, when it doesn't seem like God is listening to the cries of his beloved people in the midst of first century persecution, when Nero is lighting Christians on fire as stakes, actual torches, tiki torches for his courtyard, and their heads are on the chopping block, and brothers and sisters that they commune with in this time were being killed for their faith. And they're crying out to God and they're saying, God, restore your kingdom. God, bring justice to us speedily. And it seems as though God doesn't answer. He says if they want to remain effective, if they want to remain a devoted people, they must pray. We've got to be a praying people. You see, what I love about this this verse uh, in this passage here is that it's an encouragement for you and I because this is not just for the disciples. This command, this uh, this, this statement to pray always is for you and I. It's not just for the first century Christian, it's for you and I. You see, prayer is not the optional activity of the more committed. Prayer is not uh, something that you can do when it suits you. Prayer is the Christian imperative that Christ gives to the Christian in the passage right now. If we are to remain an effective people, if this church wants to be an effective church, it doesn't matter how awesome our programming is. It don't matter how cool Travis Ryan's beard is. It doesn't matter. What matters is that this church comes before God on our knees and say, God, you move. You build your church. And a church that's not on their knees will not be a successful church. A church that's not on their knees praying will be a church that closes its doors. That's what kind of church that'll be. But I'm so thankful for the vision of this this church. That despite the odds, that despite how hard a culture that we can have the vision to plant churches in post-Christian Belgium, in an area of Thailand where there are hardly any Christians. Why? How is it possible? Because this church comes to God and says, God, you move. God, you build your church. And I'm thankful for it. You see, prayer and our participation in it tethers our hope to the promises of God. Even though our even though the outcome of our cries many times doesn't match the plea that we have, when we pray, it, it anchors us in the hope and the promises of God. And we're going to talk about how that is, but Jesus says from the beginning, he says, pray always so that you don't lose hope. He says, pray always and not lose heart. But what I love is that this isn't just a command, great leadership principle. You can never call anybody to go anywhere that you're not willing to. Right? You can never lead a group of people to a place you've not been. In Jesus, what we see in his, his ministry is that he was a person characterized by prayer. If someone was to describe Christ, you see it all through the scriptures. He was a praying man. Jesus would often retreat from the business of his ministry when the crowds, the people, would, the multitude would follow. And Jesus would, would be in the midst of some heavy, intense, laborious ministry. 
he would often retreat. He would go to the wilderness and Jesus would get alone and he would pray. He was a praying man. Jesus would, if you remember the story, right before he calls his 12 disciples, where was Jesus? He was praying all night. Jesus uh, was praying on the mountain when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And Jesus, the night before he gave his life on the cross for those who would put faith in him, was in the Garden of Gethsemane crying out to Jesus, so much so that it says that blood fell from his pores. He was praying fervently, repeatedly. Jesus was a praying man. Jesus prayed, and he calls you and I to do the same. The Apostle Paul called man of God an incredible, incredible guy, uh, wrote over a third of the New Testament. Paul, in one of his more straightforward passages about prayer, his, his verses about prayer that he wrote, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it says this, get ready, pray without ceasing. I love that. Just straight up, pray without ceasing. Now, you and I, uh, we're a little confused a lot of times. How is this possible? How do we pray persistently? How do we pray without ceasing? You see, Jesus, as God's member, second member of the Trinity, speaks a word, always pray. That, that's a command. Now, Jesus also, God in the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul, is reinforcing the very thing that he opens this parable with, and he says, pray without ceasing. So this is a Christian imperative. This is something we have got to be about. We've got to be a praying people, and we have to pray persistently. He says, pray always, and now, now Paul says again, pray without ceasing. How do we do that? You say, I've got work, bro. I've got to, I've got to get my kids ready for school. I've got to cook. I've got to clean. I've got to hit Instagram up, Facebook, all that. I can't do that with praying hands and closed eyes. I can't do it. Please don't. Okay, don't do it, especially while you're driving, all right? It's not good. It's ice on the roads, people. Come on. Uh, listen, we, how do we pray then without ceasing? How do we pray persistently? What is the Bible saying here? You see, it's helpful when you and I look at the original language that the Bible was written, that this scripture, this passage was written. When it says, but pray without ceasing, always to pray. These are similar verses in their original language, similar words in the Greek in their original language, and, and they carry with them, if you look, they carry with them a connotation, a military connotation. All right, always to pray. Pray without ceasing. Uh, this without ceasing is a phrase that carries a military connotation that means a repeated military assault. So the way that this would happen is uh, a military, um, a, 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 an army would be attacking someone, right? And they would gather, they would go on the assault, they would attack, they would pull back, regroup, rebuild, rest, and then they would repeat. They would attack, they would pull back, regroup, rest, repeat. Right, so that's one connotation. Another connotation is, is one of a, a hacking cough. Now, you and I are no stranger to this. We live in Tennessee, right? The weather changes more than high school relationships, right, you guys? Uh, right? So, so, so you, know, you know what I'm talking about, right? We, you have cold season, hot season, cold season, allergy mecca. That's what this is, okay? Uh, we have snow on the ground. Next week's going to be 60. I'm, I don't know if that's true, but it probably is. Um, you know, so we live in this, and we all probably are no strangers to uh, this hacking cough. And, and, and what the Scripture is saying isn't, it's continual in the sense that we never come up for air, that we just hack our heads off continually until we pass out. It's not that. It's that we, we cough, and then we get some version of the quill. You take it. You get a little bit of uh, 
<laughs> Amen. Uh, you know, you get some kind of relief. You, you kind of get some rest, and then it comes back. It's persistent. It's repeated. It's, it's continual in the sense that it's, it has this ebb and flow to it. Ebb and flow. But, but, but we have to understand that it doesn't just go away for months. It doesn't just, uh, just like prayer, we don't pray if we're repeatedly praying. We're not a praying people that just fit prayer periodically into the, the, the cracks and holes of our life whenever it's most convenient for us. If we're a praying people, it's not the mortar that we just stick in the holes of our lives. If we're, if we're people that are committed and devoted to prayer, prayer becomes the foundation by which the whole home of our spiritual lives are built. That's what a people committed to prayer. That's when he says pray without ceasing. Pray repeatedly, fervently, continually. That's, the, that's what Jesus, in, when he says always pray, and when Paul says pray without ceasing, this is what the church ought to be characterized by, a people that don't just pray when the wills are falling off. Uh, Corey Ten Boom said, uh, incredible missionary, uh, she said, is prayer the spare tire you throw on when things hit the fan? Or is prayer the steering wheel by which you drive your life? What would it, if, if I was to characterize your life, which one would I say? Are you committed to praying? Are you always praying? Are you persistently praying? Are you devoted to prayer? Or are you a person that just prays when you need a bill met, when you've gotten bad news? And these things are not bad things to pray about, but our relationship with Jesus, a, a, a Christian that is persistently praying, is one that their life is marked by prayer, is built upon prayer. Jesus is helping us understand this. And so out of the gate, he gives us a directive. He says, always pray. And it's important. We spent some time in verse 1. He says, always pray. Now that you know what that looks like, Jesus illustrates this by telling us a story. He introduces us to two people. Uh, in verse 2, we meet an unjust judge. Not just any judge. It says that this judge didn't fear God nor respect man. This is the judge we're talking about. So this is like, in my mind, the love child of Judge Judy and Ozzy Osbourne, okay? So you, you just think, like, this is, this is who we're dealing with. This is a bad dude, right? So there's the first character that we're told in the story. He doesn't, doesn't respect uh, man or fear God. And in verse 3, we're also told the main character of the story, the protagonist of this story, is a widow. Now, don't blow by that. A widow in the context this passage was written, which is important that you understand, a widow is the low of society, the low, low of society, the neglected, the, the overlooked, the forgotten, right? The widow is the picture in this story of the poor, the needy, the oppressed. That is the widow. So, so when we see in this passage that you have this, this, this unjust judge and this widow converging in the story. This is an epic, colossal train wreck fixing to happen. Right? Like, we, we know the rest. I've read the parable, but they're hearing this for the first time in the context that they're hearing it. They have this unjust judge and this low widow, this lowly, persistent widow, a widow that was the last person you would expect to have the resource or connection to secure legal representation and get any kind of justice, let alone from one that was an unjust judge. And so in the story, you hear off the lips of Jesus. You can imagine these people are hearing this for the first time. They're like, okay, you told us that you're going to tell us a parable about 
praying persistently and not losing heart, how in the world are you going to get this? How is this going to illustrate your point, Jesus? This is like the, the, the two, like water and oil, right? They just won't mix. There's something bad fixing to happen. It's like that moment you and I are very familiar with where you, you see something bad's fixing to happen. You're watching a show. You know the, the bad dude is like in this room and the, 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 the dumb girl always goes in the room with the, you know, the, the guy. You can see the whole thing kind of folding. You can't put your hand in it. You can't get it to stop. You want to so bad, but this train wreck's fixing to happen like a Titans coaching hire, Amen. Right? Like you want to stop it, you know what's going to happen, and you can't. It's what we're left with. In this story, this is what we see happen. This is what's converging. But then the, the story goes that the widow continually comes to the judge, and she persistently nags and pleads. And, and the judge comes to him, himself, and he finally says, okay, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this woman's driving me crazy, I will give her justice. And then Jesus says something that stuns probably the crowd and it's, it perplexes them. Verse 6, he says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. So Jesus is making a connection back to his initial statement. He said, I'm telling you a parable. I know what you're fixing to go through. Believer in the room, I know what you're going through. I've not overlooked you. I know what you're going through. And if you are going to not lose heart and pray persistently, look what the judge says. I think they were probably stunned. What? <laughs> Did I miss something? What you got to understand is that Jesus was teaching in a form of comparative argument called lesser to greater. And if you were to write out a formula, it would go something like this. If A is true and it's the lesser, then how much more true is B if it's greater? Some of you are like, huh? <laughs> Let me put it this way. If the lowly widow, the neglected, the, the overlooked, the, the poor, the oppressed widow can get justice from the unjust judge, the judge that doesn't fear God nor respect man, if she can get justice from that judge, how much more will you get justice who are the chosen of God? How much more? He's this comparative lesser to greater argument. But the issue that you and I have with this argument and with this train of thought is that many times the stuff that we brought in here with us, the experiences that we're walking through, begin to warp and twist our perspective of not only God, but ourselves. And, and, and it's the, the underlying motivating factor that leads to our lack of persistence in prayer is due to a jacked up perspective. A perspective that is, that is being warped and twisted based on how you are experiencing things. That you've, you've, you've had a marital issue and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and God has not, has not fixed anything. The, the tension's still in the room. You've, you have a, uh, this, uh, this woman, this person, this family member in your family that you're, you're close to. You want God to heal and she continues to get bad news after bad news after bad news. And it seems that God is not listening to you. And what happens is over time in that if we don't come back to the scripture and allow it to realign our perspective, recalibrate our perspective what happens is, is that we begin to equate God as this judge. And so there are two things that Jesus wants to do with this parable today. He wants to correct 
our perspective so that it fuels our persistence. But the way he does that is by realigning two foundational flaws in our perspective in the midst of our trials. The first one is this, if you're taking notes, God is not like the unjust judge. Jesus wants us to see this. God's not like the unjust judge, but like we just talked about, when you are hopeless, when you're not being heard, when you feel like someone has wronged you and you've prayed to God and, or, or you're without resource and you've prayed to God and you've come to God and you've asked him to improve your situation, and you're hopeless and your back's against the wall and you don't see any light at the end of your tunnel, begin to equate God with the, with the, uh, the villain with the unjust judge in the story. And God says, and Jesus is speaking to us, and he says, I am not that judge. I am not that judge. That was his whole point in setting this up. He says, hear what the unjust judge says. And then in, in the next verse there, he says, in, in verse 7, he says, and will God not give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he not? He said, hear what he says, I'm not him. I know you've got some stuff you're waiting in right now that you can't understand. He said, but I'm not that God. I'm not that judge. I am God. I am good. I am holy. You see, what you and I need to understand is that God is more willing to hear our prayer than we are to pray it many times. God is more willing to answer our prayer than we are to ask it. He says, know who I am. Realign your perspective. When you begin to see God for who he is, how the scripture paints him, and stop letting your experience begin to mud up your view of Jesus, it says it will fuel your perseverance. It will fuel your persistence in prayer. The second thing he wants to show us today and do a work in is how we view ourselves. He says, you are not the widow. Now understand, the widow is the model for how we ought to pray, persistently, fervently, repeatedly, continually. She is the model for that. That is how we ought to come to God. We, we ought to, to, to come to God so much so, even when it doesn't add up, we just know because we anchor our hope in who God is, in his character, because we've already reestablished a correct perspective of who God is. He's not the unjust judge. So when we come to pray and we don't get the things that we're asking for and, and things are not improving on our side, we have to anchor ourselves in the goodness, in the person, the character of God, in his sovereignty. Because listen here, prayer is not about your wants. Prayer is about God's will. And it doesn't matter how many times you come to God, you're not going to change his mind. And prayer shouldn't be about us coming to God and saying, God, change your mind. God, change your mind. Please, God, will you, will you not let this pass? See, persistent prayer begins to align our hearts with God's. Align our minds to see God's plan and to see what he's dragging us through. How he's sanctifying us to look more and more like his son. He says, I am not the unjust judge and you are not the widow. But when you feel like you've been wrong, when you feel like you've been overlooked, when you feel like your prayer's not been heard, you, be, you begin to equate yourself with the widow, the overlooked, the forgotten, the neglected. God, I've prayed. God, I've prayed and you've not 
You've not delivered. What's going on? And we become the victim. God says, you're not the widow. We, we got, he wants us to see ourselves, how the Bible defines us. And so in verse 7, he says, he says, and will God not give justice to the elect? Look at this verse. Verse 7. He says, and will God not give justice to his elect? I told you to underline that despite your views of that word. Put all that down for a second. The Bible labels you. If you are found in Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Christ through faith, not of your own doing, but of God's hand, his sovereign hand, calling you to life, exchanging your twisted, depraved heart, your dead heart, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians, that we were dead. He exchanges that for a heart of righteousness. If that is you, if, if you, if you are a, a child of God, it was because you were chosen. And he says, stop looking at yourself as the widow because of your experience. He says, you are, I, before the foundations of the world, I knew you. And not only did I know you, but in the most incredible display of love, I put my love on you and I set forth a redemptive plan to redeem you. I bought you with the, with the death of my son, Jesus. He says, you're not forgotten. You're not overlooked. You're loved. You're chosen. You're elect. That's how the Bible sees us. That's how Christ sees them. That's how God looks at his sons and daughters who were adopted in the righteousness. He said, you're not the widow. You don't lack resource. He says, you are sons and daughters of an imperishable inheritance. He says, you're not the widow. So I don't know what you came in here with. I don't know what you're dragging with you. I don't know what has not been answered or, or what trials you're, you're struggling with or what things you've lifted to God at no reply. He says, will God not give justice to his elect? He said, no, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, you and I have a problem with that. What do you mean speedily? And, and what do you mean Justice. You see, justice is different. For us, we want affirmative answers to the requests that we make. We say, God, give me, a, uh, give me a job, and we want a job tomorrow. We say, God, heal my mom, and we want my mom to get out of the bed and, and moonwalk across the floor. We say, God, do this for me, or do this for me, or do this for me. And we want yes, yes, yes. But we know from last week, if you weren't with us, please go catch up. He said, we can get yes many times. God will. Sometimes he will, get, he will, grant, he will say yes. This was in my will. Sometimes he'll say no. No, I don't, this is not my will. But many times, the discouraging thing, the thing that we, we lose hope in, we lose heart in, is when, is when it's not in our timing, when God says not yet. And right here he says, listen, those of you who are chosen, those of you who are, who are found in Jesus Christ as sons and daughters, he says, I will give justice to the elect speedily. Now, the problem with this is that prayer, it, it, we, are not, we are not guaranteed justice at the close of our prayer. We, we don't meet a quota and then God gives us what we want. 
God wants us to understand something. Uh, there, uh, there's a larger perspective that he wants us to grasp in the room today. There is a kingdom perspective that he wants us to align our prayer life with. That God, if it's not now, it's just like the model prayer. God, let your will be done. So if it's not now, I know it will come. And see, justice looks different. Some of you think justice is a, is a new job. Some of you think justice is a, is a check. See, the ultimate justice, the justice that the believer anchors their hope in is the coming of Christ. It is that day when he will make all things new. And there will be ultimate justice on that day. Because that thing you've been praying for, that disease you wanted healed, there will be no more. That, that, that trial that you're walking in, that sin that caused it, there will be no more. One day Jesus will come and he will set up all things new. And there will be no sin. There will be no heartache. There will be no despair. There will be no loss of heart. He says, that is the day that we anchor our prayers in. So there will be days, there will be prayers that are answered. And there will be days where the answer that we receive is not yet. But the way he closes this passage in verse 8 is incredible. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Notice the key word in this passage. It's not if, but when. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so my question again to you in this room is there will be a day. Let me say this. There will be a day. Philippians tells us where every knee will bow. Well, Jesus will come and he will restore all things. He will make all things new. He will not improve things. He will not overhaul things. He will not uh, put an addition on things. He will make all things new. Everything that we know, that we experience on this earth, will be radically, not altered, new. And when that day comes, will he find faith in you? When you stand before God, Will your prayer life falter at a delay in answer? Will your faith and your persistence and your perseverance to anchor your hope in God, will it fade because requests weren't met? Or maybe in the rooms today through Christ's teaching, you and I will understand that if we are to pray always and not lose heart, it's because we understand something. The elect have no, no reason to lose hope. We have no permission to, to, to lose hope. Because there is a day coming where God will make all things new. And despite our issue, despite our trial, despite the baggage that we carry, he is coming to make all things right. And so if you're in the room today and you don't know that God, you can't anchor your heart in that passage because you don't know the God of that passage. You don't have to leave today without surrendering your life to him. Today he might be calling some of you to life for the first time, opening eyes for the first time, hard, stone-cold hearts for the first time. He's given a pulse in the room today. Maybe you've been praying that God would change something or he would grant something. And the thing that he wants to change is your heart. You can come out the back of the room after we, after we pray and uh, Travis is going to lead us in a time of worship. 
you can come to the back and our pastors will be there. We want to sit with you. We want to help you. If you're in some, uh, some marital issues or some financial hardship, we want to help you. We want to come alongside of you. This is not a burden that you, you have to carry alone. That is the beauty of the church, that we come alongside of you and we bear it with you. But today, the prayer I have for this room is that we would be a people characterized by prayer, persistent prayer, despite the outcome. Because our hope isn't anchored in the outcome, but Jesus is coming. So let us be a people that pray that way. Let us be a people that pray persistently, repeatedly, fervently. And allow allow a correct perspective to fuel our persistence. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you that you are a God that promises justice to his people. Father, I pray that, Father, that as many times we can't see that as a reality in our lives because of the, the different circumstances and experiences that we we struggle with and we trial with, God. Lord, I pray that you would give us, align ourselves with your perspective, a kingdom perspective, Father. Give us fresh eyes to see this truth today. God, that we are not that widow, that begrudged, overlooked, needy, oppressed widow. God, we were created in your image. We were chosen by you before the foundations of the world, Father. And in that itself is great beauty and great value, Father, beyond compare. We do not lack resource. We do not lack influence. You have put your Holy Spirit in us. God, I pray that we would see that despite the situation that we struggle with, God, that you are not the unjust judge that you are a good, good Father, that you are sovereign, Lord, that you are holy and blameless. In your mercy and great grace, Father, you chose us. You looked on our shame. You looked on our sin. And, Father, you chose to adopt us despite it. And even went so far, Father, to send your only perfect, spotless Son, Jesus, to die on our behalf so that we could have communion with you, Father, so that we could be brought into to right standing with you, God. God, I pray if there's anyone in the room that doesn't know you, God, that they would experience that freshness, Father, that incredible exchange that can happen in their lives, Father, where you will give them righteousness and, and take from them their iniquity. God, if there's someone in the room, Father, that's already experienced that great redemption, Father, but experiences have begun to shape and twist and deform a right perspective of you and your goodness, God. Lord, I pray, Father, that today you would encourage us, just like the disciples, God, you would say, don't lose heart, don't lose perspective. I'm taking you through something. I'm molding you. I'm shaping you. I'm wanting to show you something. I'm wanting to open your eyes to who I am. 
God, help us to anchor our hope in the day, Father, when you will make all things new. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.